Good morning, everybody. I want to invite you guys to turn over in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Today we, get, we are going to begin the second half of our series in Exodus. We've been looking at, us, at, at a group of incredible and unforgettable and influential stories of God's redemption. Uh, today we turn into an incredible and unforgettable and influential set of laws or principles that God has given based on what he's done to now guide the life of the people he's redeemed. Starting today, going for the next 10 weeks, we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments. And I'll be honest, this feels big. It feels big. I, you know, for, for those of us who, who get to do a lot of teaching, the Ten Commandments probably feel, coming to the Ten Commandments and saying like this one probably feels a little bit like what it feels like for a musician to play the Ryman, you know, or a you know, baseball player to play Fenway. You know, she's like, whoa. You feel the weight of what these have been of the centrality of them to God's people's life together for thousands of years, the insights from them that have shaped not just individual people and not just local churches, but even entire cultures. And you feel small up against them. And I think there's something healthy about that, like, something that we should feel about every part of God's word when we come to it, that, that this is big because the God who made us is speaking to us and telling us the truth about who he is and what he's designed for us uh, so we won't, I think it's appropriate that we come to it with a kind of awe. And that's certainly what I'm bringing to it. And I'm going to pray that God gives all of us as we approach this series. This, the, the Ten Commandments are that big. They, they are crucial to the story that unfolds from here in Israel's life together. They're crucial to the way the prophets call Israel to, back to obedience after years of disobedience. They're crucial to Jesus' teachings about what is good and right and true. They're crucial to how the apostles Jesus left to teach his church unpacked what it looks like to live as God's people in the world. And they've been crucial to churches ever since Jesus left the earth. In fact, one of the first things that, that happened 500 years ago when, when the church was recovering much of, of its life that had been lost uh, during, the, during the years from the time that, that many of the foundational doctrines of the church were hammered out to, to, the, to the time that the reformers were teaching in, in the, uh, the Protestant Reformation, one of the first things that they did to help teach people basic truth from the Bible that, that had been lost for most common Christians in the years before them was to write commentaries about the Ten Commandments, to teach them this particular section of the Bible and why it's so timelessly relevant for us. So this, uh, th- th- this Ten Commandments series, my prayer for it is that God will bring us into the truth and the life that he has used to shape his people for 2,000 years and far before that, even to the days of Moses, to help us to see them with new eyes if they're familiar to us and to help us to see them if, they're, if you're hearing them now for the first time this, this morning and the weeks to come, to help us to see the transformative power that's in them and why they've been so influential for so long. I've got big goals, big hopes and dreams for this series. I hope you'll share them with me and pray with me that God will use this time to help us. Uh, I want you to consider the sermon that I'm going to preach to you this morning as a kind of companion to the sermon I preached to you last week. Last week fit this section of Exodus into the stories that we've been considering. This was the, the whole book of Exodus is laying out God's dealings with his people in history, things that actually happened to them to change their lives and to set them up for a new life with him as his people. Last week, we talked about grace 
the grace that God showed in delivering his people from their bondage in Egypt and how that grace leads to obedience. So think about last week as a kind of big picture from this perspective of this story, explanation for how grace and obedience go together. And then this week, as a specific zoomed-in look at the Ten Commandments that are going to take us the next ten weeks to go through. This week, my goal is to talk specifically about these rules, these words that God speaks, and to set us up for the next few weeks together. My title for the message this morning is Introducing the Ten Commandments. I was pretty pleased with that. I think it's got a kind of nice double entendre to it, all right, that I'm going to make sure isn't lost on you. I'm going to sacrifice the subtlety of it and just go ahead and tell you what I mean. Introducing Ten Commandments is the title for this message because partly what I want to do is put the whole collection in perspective. I'm going to talk to you about what they are and about why we should care about them. Those are the first two questions I'm going to take up. But then I'm also going to, to take up the first of the Ten Commandments this morning, the one that introduces the rest of the collection. It's at the top of them for a very specific reason that matters for how we view the rest of them. So I'm going to introduce you to the Ten Commandments as a whole, and then I'm going to show you how God introduces them with that first commandment. So those are the three questions we're going to come at this together this morning. What are the Ten Commandments? Why should we care about them? And why do the Ten Commandments begin here with this one? I want to begin by reading the first three verses of Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that. This is the word of the Lord to us. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is God's word. You can be seated. With these words I've just read, God begins a foundational set of teachings that are going to be expanded on through the rest of Exodus and then through much of the first five books of the Bible. I want to just tell you briefly, give you a couple of images, a couple of ways of understanding what these Ten Commandments are. What are they supposed to do? Why do they, where do they fit in the larger scheme of what God is doing with his people? How should we think about them? That's what I'm trying to get at with this first question. What are the Ten Commandments? Here's the first image I want to use to help you understand what these commandments are. I want you to think about... The, connections be- the connection between in, in our identity and how we think about ourselves, how we know who we are and what we should be doing, to think about the connection between defining moments in our lives and signature moves that come out of them. I've used this framework before in a sermon. It comes out of a book on Christian identity that I love. It's called, by a guy named Brian Rosner called Known by God. It's a kind of textbook, if you will, on this particular part of the Bible's teaching. How do we know who we are as humans? And one of the things that he says is, uh, all of us, our identity in the world is affected by things that have happened to us. What happens to you shapes who you are. One of the ways that what happens to you shapes who you are is that it affects how you live, how you respond to what happens to you, how, what your signature moves are in the world. His best example is the Depression era, which definitely resonates with me. I have grandparents that, that lived in the Depression uh, they lived not knowing where their food was going to come from. They lived day to day during that period, and so many others did. And if you've known and been close to anyone who came through that period, you probably noticed some signature moves for their life that came out of that experience. My grandparents didn't throw food away. The scraps got used one way or another. I'd get criticized. My granddaddy would get on me if I left my, my cereal bowl milk in the bowl after the cereal was gone. I had to drink it down to the last drop in his presence. 
so he could confirm that that happened because he went through the depression. He lived through a time when that, when that milk was precious. He came with some signature moves. Well, in the Bible, often when, when God's people are receiving instruction in the Old Testament or the New Testament about how they should live, it comes couched in what's been done for them, an experience that they've had of God's grace that then leads them into some new, a new set of signature moves in their life. That's exactly what's happening right here. That's why, that's why it begins where it does. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. That's a defining moment for you. This is now who you are, the redeemed by me. Here are your signature moves. This is what it looks like for you to live in the world as if you've been redeemed by me out of slavery. Defining moment, new signature moves. That's what the Ten Commandments are, are laying out for us. Now here's another image. That, that, that helps us connect with what the Ten Commandments, how the Ten Commandments go with what's come before them. This event in the life of Israel has now redefined who they are, and here's some new signature moves. Now, uh, now the second image I want to give you helps us understand how these Ten Commandments flow into what comes next. So after these Ten Commandments are given, as I mentioned before, for much of the first five books of the Old Testament, there are, uh, there are law after law after law applying these Ten Commandments to really specific situations, all right? So how do we think about what this section is in light of what's coming next? Think about it. Here's, here's an image that, that one writer gave to it this week. Uh, an, an Old Testament scholar writing about the Ten Commandments said, think about the Ten Commandments as, as sort of like the U.S. Constitution, and that what comes next is more like case laws based on the Constitution. So in our life together as a nation, we have a Constitution that's the ultimate de- definition of our values as a society. These are the things that we want to hold to and want to uh, shape the way we live together. And then we have an innumerable, literally innumerable set of federal laws that have been passed over the years that are trying to apply those basic values to very specific situations. And that's the, the, the basis for, say, court challenges over whether or not this law is a good one. The, the justices are supposed to look at the law and say, does it fit with the Constitution? Is it based on these values that we established together at the beginning of our life? Or is it off script? If it's off script, it gets overturned. If it fits, it stays. But the Constitution is different from the laws. The Constitution lays the groundwork, sets the foundation, establishes the values. The laws apply them. So what we have here in the Ten Commandments, is a constitution of sorts for Israel's life together. There's a, t- a lot more laws, many of them bizarrely to our ears specific, about how Israel's life should work together. Those laws are simply trying to apply these foundational principles that are laid out in the Ten Commandments. So, what are the Ten Commandments? Well, they're, they're a kind of set of signature moves that flow out of a new defining experience Israel has had. They're also kind of like a constitution that establishes the groundwork for all of these, these laws that are going to come next. They're, uh, they're, they're, in summary, a definition of the values of the life of God's people as those whom he's redeemed. Four of the laws, four of these commandments, focus on Israel's relationship to God. Six of these commandments focus on Israel's relationships with themselves, on, on, on how they relate to one another. And all ten of these laws or commands are summed up by Jesus in what he refers to as the two great commandments. When asked to define what is, what is the greatest commandment in his own teaching ministry, he said the first commandment is, the greatest is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first four of our ten commandments speak to that calling. 
The second is like it, he says. Love your neighbor as yourself. The, six, the next six commandments simply describe for us what it looks like to love your neighbor in practice. So that's what we're going to do together over the next 10 weeks. Try to understand what it looks like to love the Lord your God with all that you are and what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the Ten Commandments are. That's what we're going to be doing as we study them. But before we do, before we do, I want to I confront another question that you may be asking. I think it would be right for you to ask. Why should we care about them? Beyond the historical interest you might have in the Ten Commandments, beyond, beyond wanting to know why people have cared about them as long as they have, uh, why should you care about them as a factor in your life? So this is a, I've just described these Ten Commandments as a kind of constitution for a nation's life. And they, they are. But they're a constitution for a set of case laws governing a nation that doesn't exist anymore. And even for Christians who respect Israel's history and we like the Old Testament, we're fair to ask, didn't Jesus say that he's come to fulfill the law? We don't follow a lot of the laws in the Old Testament. The rules for sacrifice, for example. We don't stone people who dishonor their parents. There are many things about these case laws that we have said are no longer binding on us because Jesus has fulfilled them. Why should we care about these Ten Commandments still? I want to give you two reasons that we ought to care about these commands as Christians living today. Here's the first reason we should care about them. We should care about these commands because they show us what is good. They show us what is good. It's true. We're not under Israel's covenant. That part's true. So that means that that, that we don't have to follow the laws Israel's had to follow to govern all aspects of our life. We're in a different time than them, a different season in the life of God's people. But these Old Testament laws still, they, they, they express true things about who God is, about what he's like, about what pleases him. They point us to his character. Even if we're not called to obey all of them, these laws all in their own ways tell truth about God. Because God never changes, because these laws are attached to his unchanging character, these principles don't change either. They're still a sign, a pointer to us to what is good. And I think that's especially true, especially easy to see in the Ten Commandments. So because of all that I just said about them, because, the, because these commandments are themselves kind of pulled back one layer from the specific case laws for Israel's history, they're even more easy to recognize as good things God has given to us to help us see what pleases him. I think that's why these commands get restated so often. Jesus restates them, as I've just quoted. When asked what are the great commands, he uses two examples that summarize these ten. Paul restates them, almost quoting directly from Exodus 20 and Romans chapter 13 and 1 Timothy chapter 1. You can read him just boom, 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 listing off commands straight out of the Ten Commandments that he is applying to, to Christians that he's writing to. And, and I mentioned earlier, too, that, that it, all through the history of the church, basic discipleship has used these commands in catechisms written to, to teach people what it means to be a Christian and how to live a life that glorifies God. We should care about them, in other words, because they help us know how to honor God and love one another. Apart from these commands, we might not know how to do that. I want to, I want to, offer, I want to recommend a book to you at this point, uh, a book by a guy named Kevin DeYoung, a pastor here in the States, called The Ten Commandments. It's about the Ten Commandments, as you can see. 
And one of the reasons I'm mentioning it now is that he does a good job at the beginning of this book of laying out things I've just barely touched on, on how often these commandments come up in the teaching of the history of the church, how regularly they show up in the New Testament, how fundamental they are to how God's people know how to please God since they were written and across all the changes in Israel's life and in the life of the church ever since. He makes a good case for that, and I recommend this book to you. We've got several copies out there uh, on the resource table. Apart from these commands, we might not know how to honor God and love one another. How do you know how to give a good and thoughtful and meaningful gift to somebody? If you want to please someone, that's important to you. And you want to, you want to give them something that you think will please them. How do you know what to give them? The best case scenario is you would just intuitively get it. You would just be, have paid enough attention to them so that their loves become your loves and, and you just naturally, you doing what you would do is exactly what they would want. That's the best case scenario. But often that just doesn't work. And you end up giving somebody something you would want, not what they most want. At least that's what I do. Maybe this is a little too revealing about me and my own gift-giving habits. But, but I've learned that my intuitive grasp of people isn't necessarily enough to end up pleasing them. So the next best case scenario, if intuition alone doesn't get you there, is to ask and to listen, to pay attention, to hear what they say about themselves and what pleases them, to ask people who would know, other close friends who who know what they like and can point you in the right direction. If you don't get it by intuition, the next best thing to do, the most respectful thing to do is is to listen. And that's the kind of guide we have here in these Ten Commandments. It would be presumptuous of us, friends, to believe that by intuition alone, we can know what pleases God. That he should be pleased by whatever we want to give him, however we want to please him, however we want to relate to him and live our lives under him. Verse 2 reminds us that he is the Lord. He is the great I am. Exodus has already shown us. He exists above and beyond who we are and what we know. And if we're to know how to please a God like this, who is not like us, who's holy and apart, then we're going to need help. And that's exactly what these commandments give us. It's not an exhaustive list, but it is an incredibly applicable list. And, and, and as simple as these commands are, when you peel them back layer by layer, you find out this is an onion that goes down really far. And one of the things we're going to try to do together as we, as we go through these commands is try to see all the different ways that one simple command can apply into our lives. Negative things to avoid, but also positive things to seek out. The deeper you go, the sweeter it is. The first reason we should care about them is that they show us what's good. They still teach us who God is and what pleases him. But there's another reason we ought to care about them. We ought to care about these Ten Commandments because they show us that we're not good enough. They show us what is good, but they're also meant to show us that we aren't good enough. And that that revealing of our standing under this law is a great gift to us. It comes with some pain. And it, never, it never feels good to see the truth about ourselves when the truth isn't flattering. But it's a great gift when it drives us to Jesus. When that pain sends us running to him. One of the clearest teachings in all of the Bible is that no one is righteous, worthy, acceptable through their obedience to the law. No one. From Old Testament through the New Testament, that message comes through. 
It's a dead end game to think that you can obey enough to be worthy. But without the law to show our weakness and sin, we might actually live in self-deception and never know the truth about ourselves. Yes, it's true. No one will ever be righteous through their obedience to the law because all of us disobey it. But it's also true that without the law to show us our disobedience, to tell us what pleases God and help us to see that we haven't, not perfectly, then we would all be tempted to deceive ourselves about the truth. I, I, um, I got basketball in the brain for obvious reasons these days. It's uh, March Madness is just kicking off. And about the only basketball I ever, I don't play basketball much, but about the only time I ever do play is when we're messing around in our driveway, uh, which pits me against my eight-year-old, my six-year-old, and my two-year-old. If my understanding of what good basketball play looks like were defined by my performance against my eight-year-old, my six-year-old, and my two-year-old, And friends, you have never seen a talent like mine. (laughs) I have an uncanny accuracy on the three ball compared to my six-year-old. I can get it all the way to the rim, and sometimes it goes in. (laughs) Compared to my two-year-old, if you could see me break the ankles of my two-year-old with my... that's That's not a literal term. That means like juke them. It means like go one way and then go the other way so that they're left standing. I don't mean literally break his ankles. If you could see my crossover dribble followed by my spin where I blow right past him like he's not even there and lay it up. I mean, it's like he's not even there. You have never seen anything like my drive to the lane on my two-year-old. And if my standard for basketball skill and excellence were set by the two-year-old that I play against, then I would live in deception and never know the truth that I'm actually terrible at basketball. And the standards are far higher out there in the real world. With the law, friends, it's even more dangerous than my self-deception about my basketball skills because when it comes to the law, friends, life and death are at stake. And we cannot underestimate our tendency to build laws we know we can fulfill. I mentioned this this book by Kevin DeYoung on the Ten Commandments and how relevant that they are. Uh, Another image that I found in him this week, I had not seen this when it actually first came out, but near the beginning of the book, he he cites a uh, crowdsourcing study that was done as a kind of a book publicity stunt by um, uh, an exec at Airbnb and an atheist... uh, Chaplain at Stanford University. They collaborated on a crowdsourced version of the, the ten, they call it the ten non-commandments. Um, they're really interesting. You can Google this, I think, and, and find them. A lot of the stuff in there you would, wouldn't surprise you at all. Uh, and then a lot, there's a lot of good in it. You know, a lot of good things that if we were to follow these non-commandments that are laid out in this, this set of ten would be good for all of us. There's, there's plenty of good in it. Also, a lot of things that, uh, that you would expect. Plenty of logical contradictions in these Ten Commandments. I mean, imagine that from a crowdsourced definition of moral living. Uh, you've got one that's, there is no right way to live. 
hemmed in between two that tell you exactly how you should live. The importance of, say, living uh, for future generations and not consuming everything that your grandchildren are going to need to to live a flourishing life. You know, lots of good, but right there alongside these these implications that, that everyone's just doing their own thing and no one gets to tell anyone else how to live. I, I'm less interested in what these specific commands are. You can read those on the, these non-commands. What these non-commands are, you can read those on your own. I, I think the main thing that's interesting about them is just the assumption behind the project. If you want to know how you're supposed to live, ask the folks around you. I think that a project like this one, a crowdsourced definition of the good life, vastly underestimates our incentive to come up with rules that we think we already do a good job of obeying. A crowdsourced definition of the good life is just like defining your skill set in basketball against that of your two-year-old. It underestimates our tendency to come up with rules we know we can, we, we can obey, and it vastly, here's the real risk, friends, it vastly underestimates God's desire to be trusted and obeyed on His terms. That project won't square with the God of the Bible. And his law is meant to help protect us against thinking that it could. Paul describes the law in Galatians 3.24 as our guardian until Christ came. And the old ways to, 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 to describe that phrase was as a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, to teach us our need for him. The law is meant to show us who we really are so that we're driven to Christ for help. The law is not meant to cleanse us. It's meant to show us we're dirty. Another, another image from another writer, a preacher from 50 or 60 years ago, was to think of the law as a mirror that you look into. That's not original to him. A lot of people have said that. You look in the law to see what should be, but also to see like who you are. It, it, it illuminates truth about you. And in the law, in the law as mirror, you can see the dirt on your face, so to speak. But you'd be crazy to use your mirror to try to wash your face, right? It's not good for that. It's not what it's meant for. If you, if you break the mirror off the wall and rub it on the dirt on your face, the dirt's going to stay right there. It doesn't have cleansing power. The purpose of the mirror is to tell you, you need to go find something that can clean that face. It's to drive you to cleansing power, not to provide it. And so the law is meant to show us not just what is good, but that we're not good enough so that we know we need something beyond ourselves if we're to be able to live rightly in this world. That's why we should care about the Ten Commandments. They're going to prepare our hearts for Jesus. And each week, as we unpack each individual command, one of the things we're going to try to do is to see what is, how does this command show us the dirt on our face? And then how does it prepare us to trust in Jesus well? Those are, the, the, those are the things I want to say to help introduce you on the whole to the Ten Commandments and to how we're going to try to approach them in this study together over the next few weeks. I want to use the minutes I've got left to say a little bit about the first commandment. Why the Ten Commandments begin here. And one reason I, I decided to go ahead and use a good bit of time this morning introducing the whole collection and less time just on this one particular command, is that it's sort of a package command with the one that comes after it that we'll take up next week. Both of them are about how we look at God. 
This one is a command to have no other gods before me. Next week is a command not to make any gods on your own. Images or pictures or statues or anything you could build with your own hands and then worship it as God. So we're going we're gonna to push a lot of the things we could say about this first command into the next week's sermon where we'll talk again about idolatry. But I, I do want to speak to it now as we're talking about the overview that we've just given of the Ten Commandments because the, the place of this first command here at the top is not accidental. It is fundamental to everything that comes after it. It is, in a sense, introducing the Ten Commandments itself. I want to show you how so that we can better glean from the commandments that come after it. The command itself is straightforward enough. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't think in terms of priority. That translation of it could suggest you can have lots of gods, but just make sure I'm at the top of the list. You give me what's mine first, then you can move on to theirs. It's actually just the opposite of that meaning. Before me means in my presence. Before my face is the literal translation of it. So no other gods is what it means. If you want me, it's an exclusive relationship. That's what God is telling them here at the top. Why does he start here with this command to honor him and only him as God? I want to point you to a couple of reasons I think he begins here. I think these reasons are going to help us not just understand this command, how to obey it, but they're going to set us up for uh, the things that we're going to say in the next few weeks. Number one, here's the first thing. Why do the Ten Commandments begin here? The first reason, I think, is that you can't break any other command without breaking this one first. It starts here because you've got to break this one before you can break any of the other ones. This is not original to me. It's an old insight. It's been around a long time. Um, but it's crucial. You've got to understand this. This command is foundational to the rest of the commands, and you can't break any of the other ones without breaking this one first. To understand why that's true, you've got to understand a little bit about what idolatry means in the Bible. Idolatry is having any God besides this God. And that idolatry isn't limited to, to the kinds of images that you could paint and hang on a wall or the kinds of statues you could carve and set up on your shelf. Objects like that that were common back then are certainly something he has in mind here, but they're not the only thing that he has in mind. A false God, a God in addition to the one true God who's redeemed Israel, is anything that you set your heart on as your fundamental love or trust in this world. Anything besides him that you depend on more deeply or fully than him. Martin Luther, uh, one of the great Protestant reformers, was among the guys I mentioned earlier who, when they were working on setting up new churches in, their, in the places where they lived, went to the Ten Commandments and wrote commentaries on it as a way of basic teaching for people who didn't know them, didn't know what it looked like to obey God from his word. They used the Ten Commandments to try to do that basic teaching. So Luther's got a great commentary on the Ten Commandments that I'm going to be using and that's just full of, of wonderful insights. And the, and the, main, the first thing that he says, my, probably my favorite insight in there that I've come across so far, is on just how pervasive and, and deceptive idolatry can be, how it shows up even when you don't think you're doing it because you're not bowing to an object or, you're, or worshiping some image. Luther says... Luther says, to have a God, this is a quote from him, is to have something in which the heart trusts completely. Here's another thing he says. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, that is really your God. Or in another place, he says, 
Idolatry doesn't consist merely of erecting an image and praying to it. But it's primarily a matter of the heart, which fixes its gaze upon other things and seeks help and consolation from creatures, saints, or devils. It neither cares for God nor expects good things from God sufficiently to trust that God wants to help. Nor does it believe that whatever good it encounters comes from God. There's three examples of the same exact point. Luther's saying, whatever your heart looks to, rests on, loves, that is your God. He gives a lot of examples. Money, great learning, prestige of one kind or another. Those are examples that, that to me, cut right across the 500 years that separate us from him. Those are our examples too, aren't they? Some things never change. I'm going to give you another example. You know, I've said at the top that, that this command is first, partly because you can't break any of the other commands unless you first break this command against idolatry. Any other time you break a command, it's because you're worshiping in your heart some other God besides this one. Let me just give you an example of that. The end of the Ten Commandments, the last one that we'll look at, is covetousness. It's in verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything else that's your neighbor's. Paul, when he's writing about covetousness, Colossians, he calls covetousness idolatry. Paul is saying, in other words, you break the Ten Commandment, Tenth Commandment, because you've broken the first. Why? How does that work? Think about it. Think about what has to happen in your mind and heart for you to covet something that belongs to your neighbor, your neighbor's wife, or donkey, or anything else. Say your neighbor's outfit, or personality, or body, or family. Anytime that happens, for that to happen, you first have to believe that what God has already given you isn't enough. You have to believe that God in giving you himself isn't enough. You have to believe that having God for your friend, for your provider and your protector isn't enough. To to set your heart on some good besides God means you set God aside as God. Something else has become more important to you than he is. And, And that's just another way of saying, if Luther's right here, I think he is, it's just another way of saying that something else has become your God, your functional God, the God you love and serve and and obey, the God in whom you trust for the good life. Whatever you're coveting, you've begun to worship. You can't break the 10th commandment without breaking the first. That's why they start here. But there's another reason that they start here. It's not just that you have to break this one before you can break any of the other ones. They start here because all the Ten Commands, this is reason number two, all the Ten Commandments belong to an exclusive relationship of love. Every one of these commands fits into a relationship that God is establishing with His people, a relationship of exclusive, devoted love. These commands are not about a sort of provider and client relationship. They're not just legal requirements. They aren't transactional. Here, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. These commands are meant to serve a relationship of love and trust. And that means 
In this first command, what we have here is a radically different understanding of how religion is supposed to work. Radically different from anything at that time and radically different from the intuitions and instincts we bring to religion today. See, back then, what was normal was what we'd call polytheism. Lots of gods. Just keep tacking them on because they all offer you different things that you need. You would, you would turn to one god to make sure you had the rain you need. You turn to another God to make sure that you had the harvest that you couldn't live without. You turn to another God for success in war or fertility or love or whatever it is you were particularly set on. There was a God for that. And that God needed from you sacrifices, food, typically. It was a transactional relationship. That's what Israel had grown up around in Egypt. That was the only kind of religion they knew. But this God... This God who has redeemed them, the Lord that is their God, He doesn't want customers. He wants a spouse. At the end of the stories that we've considered this morning, we came to chapter 19 last week, and at the beginning of that chapter, God reminded them, I have brought you, bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to Myself. The point was to come to Him, to know and love Him. That's why He's coming back, echoing it here in chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God. Look what I've done for you. I wanted you. It's one reason that the prophets, when they begin to condemn Israel's disobedience, when Israel is not faithful to these commands, when the prophets start to call them out for it, one, one, one idea that comes up many times is that God wants from them not just sacrifices, but their hearts. He wants their love and devotion. And it's especially present in one of the prophets, a prophet known as Hosea. An interesting thing to read this week for you in your own Bible reading between this sermon and the one that comes next week because it provides incredible perspective and context for these two, first two commands. In the prophet Hosea... It's after Israel has been flagrantly disobedient, especially to these commands against having other gods. They have looked to any god they could get. They have turned wherever their neighbors were looking to get the things God said He would provide for them. And in order to help them understand how God experienced that disobedience, God tells His prophet Hosea to marry, to take as His own wife a prostitute, knowing that that prostitute would continue choosing prostitution over marriage to him. And that's what the book of Hosea lays out in vivid detail. Israel was to God like a wife. That's what he wanted from this relationship. But she had behaved towards him like a prostitute, only looking for business transactions, never giving him herself. All of the commands we're going to consider belong inside this relationship, a relationship of love and authority obeyed out of love and trust and devotion. It's a relationship of love that's playing out in front of us here. God wants a spouse that he wants to cultivate and purify. And he wants a spouse that trusts him enough to show love to him through willing, glad-hearted obedience to the things he says are good for them. He starts here with this command that this relationship be exclusive, not because he's jealous in a petty and insecure way, but because he is jealous in a deep, in, on the level of deep and absolute 
commitment and devotion. He's jealous because this marriage matters to him. And what he wants with you is a, is a relationship of love and personal devotion. Disobedience then, for God, is always deeply personal. Disobedience to, the command, to this command and all the others that come is to God a rejection of the history that he has with his people, of what he's shown them about himself as if he hadn't proven already his love and his trustworthiness in their lives. The Ten Commandments start here because you've got to break this one before you can break any of the other ones and because all of them are meant to give structure and content to a relationship that's described best as a marriage between God and his people. That's why they begin here. I want to finish by giving you a word of encouragement about this command. I think there's, there's a lot of reasons to obey this command, to have no other God besides him. There's what he's already shown, Israel. And that's his, that's his reason for it. And he gives it right before he gives the command. He gives a reason to obey it. There's the fact that he is Lord and only he is Lord, ruling over all that is. He's made everything that is. There's nothing that is that he didn't make with his own hands. So he has the right to obedience. We could talk about that. And we have. But one of the things I hope will be clear in the weeks to come as we look not just at what these commands mean, but at how Jesus prepares us to embrace them. One of the things I'll hope that will become clear is that obeying Him, embracing Him as the only God in our lives is something we should want to do because there is no God like our God. When God defines His holiness, His godness, His set-apartness from everything else that is, one of the key images He uses for His holiness is the fact that He, unlike man, forgives. In Hosea that I mentioned earlier, after and in in and amongst all sorts of language about God's just anger against sin and and His decision to set right the lies that sin tells about who He is, in and amongst all of that, There's this passage from Hosea chapter 11 where God talks about his holiness, the no other godness of God. Here's how he defines it. How can I give you up, he says? How can I hand you over, O Israel? He said he was going to. Israel deserves it. How can I do it, he says? My heart, he says, recoils within me. It shrinks back at the thought of leaving you to yourself. My compassion, he says, grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger, the jealousy at Israel's replacement of him with other gods. I will not again destroy Ephraim, another word for Israel. Why? For I am God, he says, and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I'm not like anything else you've ever known, and I will not come in wrath. Do you see what he's saying there? This command is commanding us to treat no one else like God because there is no other God. But that's not rooted in fear. It's rooted in the knowledge that His holiness is defined by His steadfast love that extends to His people over and over and over again and is available to anyone who will trust in it no matter what they've done to reject Him up to now. 
His holiness is defined by his love, not just by his opposition to all sin, but by the patience and tenderness he shows towards sinners. Earlier in this service, we read from Romans chapter 5. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us so that we could know, be reconciled to this holy God who is not like us. You can trust him. You can set him apart as God in your own heart because no one else would love you like this. No one else would offer this kind of grace to sinners. This gospel is for all of you, friends. Even if you've come in here today, stumbled in here, weighed down by guilt over something you've done yesterday that you know you can't undo and that's weighing you down now. If you came in here hoping for a way to turn your life around, and I hope you'll see from these Ten Commandments that that's not what they are for you. There is no new future, new life for you that depends on your own obedience, on your resolve to be different than you were when you walked in here today. Friends, that is another set of shackles for you that you will not be able to live with. The gospel offers you something far greater. It offers you a loving God who will be your God if you will trust not in what you can do to earn this favor from him, but if you will trust in the grace and love he's already shown you in giving his own son to sacrifice his life for yours. There is no other God worthy of your love and trust, partly because there is no other God who would love you like that. That makes Christ, friends, not just our greatest model for what obedience looks like, but our greatest motive for keeping these commandments. And we're going to come back to him every week to see how his light shines on these commands and stirs our hearts to follow them. I want to begin now by praying that God will bless us, not just with what we've heard this morning, but with what we're going to consider over the next couple of months together. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for speaking to us again this morning by what you've spoken so long ago. We know that there is much like Israel in our hearts, that our heads are easily turned by other things that promise us goodness and beauty and truth and life, that we would much rather rest in a God that we can control than the one we can't. We know that there is much in us that keeps us from obeying this first commandment. We know that. And so we ask you, by the power of your spirit, a power not of this world, to change our hearts to love what you love, to direct our attention to the goodness you have shown us all around us in this world and supremely in Jesus. So that when we look on you, this God we're commanded to observe, we don't look on you with fear, but with love and trust and devotion. This is what you deserve. We ask you to give us the ability to offer back to you what you've commanded us to give you. And we trust you with that now in Jesus' name. Amen.